Could we please have all of the snorkelers on board make their way upstairs to the sun deck area? We are To see just the shadow of a black-tipped reef shark slide past a pale lilac, 300-year-old boulder coral, to find a turtle looming up in your peripheral vision, to be quite astonished at the grazing multitudes of fish species you've never seen before, in gardens of impossible corals of every colour. These are some of the joys you might encounter as you bravely dive under the surface of the ocean without land in sight on the Great Barrier Reef. I think we thought it was so big that we would never really damage it. So far this century, there's been five Category 5 cyclones that have crossed the Queensland coast. That compares with the last century when we didn't have a single Category 5 cyclone cross the Great Barrier Reef. When did you decide that the ocean was going to be the thing for you? <laughs> so it started out with jaws, unfortunately. <laughs> the reef looms large in the Australian imagination and sense of national identity and pride. For now, it's narrowly avoided being listed as endangered by UNESCO, but with 50% of its coral cover dead, it remains on a knife edge of survival. And for climate change, it's a canary in the global coal mine, a marker of the severity of what's coming to us. So the eyes of the world remain on the reef. Climate change is one of those issues that um, when you first hear about it, you, you don't want to know about it. And once you embrace the science and you realise that it is happening, then it's easy to get depressed. <laughs> and then you have to push through that and start to be pragmatic. And I think that's where many of us have got to. But the reason it's so overwhelming is because it's, for the main part, pretty inexorable. I mean, over the next couple of decades, no matter what we do, climate change will continue. And we're seeing absolutely indisputable evidence of rising temperatures, both in the air and in the sea. We're seeing signs of um, changes in the ocean's chemistry. It's getting more acidic because of climate change or carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And bleaching events will become more frequent and more severe, not less. At 1,200 kilometres from tip to toe, some of our reef still remains a stunning example. But there are reefs all through the tropics. They're fish nurseries, food bowls, tourism attractions and cultural heritage sites. And they're all in serious decline. The pressures are variations on the same interconnected themes. Overfishing, overdevelopment, pollution runoff, ocean warming and coral bleaching, and imbalances in biodiversity, like the plague outbreaks of Crown of Thorns starfish. Basically, after a flood event, we get much more runoff and we get a higher percentage of nutrients into the water. What occurs with this excess nutrients is crown of thorns have a very high reproductive capacity and this is part of their boom and bust population. One female can spawn up to 100 million eggs in a spawning season. Marine biologist Scott Firth manually controls these outbreaks for the Association of Marine Tourism Operators. Now the survivorship of those eggs is very, very, very low. And what happens is when we get these excess nutrients into the water system, the survivorship of these crown of thorns start to go up. 
So it goes from 0.0001% to 0.001%. And that exponential increase in the survivorship of the crown of thorns is what drives the outbreaks. And while the pressures are escalating, the responses are changing. Across the world, taking care of a reef is not just a wrangle between what environmentalists and developers want. It's become multidisciplinary, and tourism operators, local residents, coastal farmers, scientists and fisheries all play their part. Coral reef managers bring them all together and recently there was an international gathering in far north Queensland with managers from Jamaica, Guyana, the Pacific Islands and Grenada. They came through the Department of Foreign Affairs and were hosted by two marine biologists, Paul Marshall. I'm Dr Paul Marshall, I'm the director of a small upstart consulting firm called Reef Ecologic and I have been working at the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority for 15 years so um, most of my professional life has been spent working on the reef, it's the, it's the passion of my life. And marine biologist and freediver Adam Smith. My name's Adam Smith. I was born with salt water in my blood so I've always been attracted to the ocean. My current role is director of a company called Reef Ecologic. Hi, my name is Samantha and I'm a marine conservation officer from Samoa. So, when I was young, I saw the movie Jaws <laughs> and I thought, no, I'm sure they're not that vicious. <laughs> and so I really wanted to get in the marine environment so I could really show people that sharks aren't so bad because they're my favourite animal. <laughs> so once this job got advertised, I'm like, okay, I think this is me. <laughs> I think this is my calling. <laughs> We have family all over the island. Our favourite place to visit, all of us as cousins and siblings, was a little village in Safata. And we grew up on the water. And we used to catch fish, uh, catch crabs, little ones. And it was quite fun because it was a way of um, getting together and doing something together. As you've grown up, how have you seen your marine environment change? This village I was talking about, very big impacts from definitely the tsunami and right now the beach is different before it was white sand now it's black sand and most of the reef is completely dead yes about i'd say 40 percent from back then hmm. in jamaica 80 percent of the coral cover of their reef is dead my name is andrea donaldson from jamaica i work with the national environment and planning agency and I'm Christine O'Sullivan from Jamaica and I work for the University of Technology, Jamaica. Tell me about the reefs around Jamaica. We have mainly fringing and patch reefs. So you'll have little pockets of reefs along the coast. We have at the moment low biodiversity, low coral cover, a lot of macroalgae on the reef because we've taken out a lot of the herbivores off the reef in fishing. Um, Jamaica is often known as the poster child for overfishing in the Caribbean, which is not something that we're particularly proud of. And then very, very small fish now are being caught, so we're getting very small sizes and things like that. So our reefs are heavily degraded at the moment. When were they last healthy? It's hard to say when they were last healthy because our reef is not only impacted by landward, sources of pollution, sediments, nutrients. But the past few hurricanes and previous hurricanes have done damage 
and in the damage caused by the overfishing and the land-based sources of pollution has exacerbated the problem. Have you had an increase in hurricanes? I'm not sure if it's more increase or strength that we're getting stronger storms and hurricanes in a short period. And sometimes the system doesn't recover at all. And the corals that are delicate are the ones that do not grow back as fast. We have to also look at how much coral cover we actually have. Like the percentage coral cover that you have here is far more than what we have in Jamaica. Our percentage coral cover is much, much lower. It's what, 20, 20%. 20%? You know, and then it's primarily things like macroalgae. So our reefs are not doing so well. I think that what breaks down the ability to deal with that temperature is those land-based sources of pollution because it's added impact. They're not having the time to build strength or resistance to temperature rise. And so to improve our coral cover, we really need to deal with the land-based sources of pollution. We try and do that with increasing forest cover, with improving the sewage disposal process, but then we do have the issue of solid waste when it does wash down the gullies that people don't remember that anything they throw on the land will end up at sea. Yeah, my name is Roland Baldio and I'm the Marine Protected Area Coordinator from Grenada. Well, we have um, obviously not as much as the Great Barrier Reef, but um, we have some reefs around the island and um, they're in fairly good condition. I would say about 30% cover with 30% alive. What are your main issues? Our main threats are from land-based sources of pollution. So two years ago, we did a test of the water. We found high levels of nitrates and phosphates, over 100 times the acceptable limit. And it was alarming. And we said, no, something is wrong. So then we took a walk up that river, way into the inland villages. And then we found what was causing the high nutrient loading that we were getting. It's from the farmers with their livestock right on the riverbanks. They're washing down these pens every day, and that uh, is coming right down into the, the marine protected area. So the water quality, I think, that's the biggest threat that we are facing. Pollution runoff, extreme weather, temperature rises. Only 20% of your coral cover still alive. This is the new normal, but it wasn't always like that the baseline, the basic condition of a healthy reef is shifting in people's minds. And that's really troubling because people just come to accept mediocrity when it comes to you know, ecosystem health. The Great Barrier Reef was widely and justifiably thought of as you know, this amazing ecosystem that was, by virtue of its size and its management and the fact that people loved it so much, was pretty much immune from all of the other things that were affecting reefs other places around the world. And in the late 90s, we started to realise that that wasn't true. And perhaps the first really big wake-up call was the massive coral bleaching event that we had in 1998. And they're caused by unusually warm sea temperatures. And in the Florida Keys in the United States, they've had some big bleaching events there that caused massive damage, and we just didn't think that could happen to us. 1998 showed that it can and um, it shook us all to the core. And I guess that was just the start of an awareness that something as big as the Great Barrier Reef could, it, could actually be threatened. I don't think any of us thought that was possible until that point. Well, we're here now on the reef's absolutely idyllic low isles, 
15 kilometres off the coast of Port Douglas. As I say, there's only two people who live on the island, caretaker rangers, and they occasionally have a couple of visitors. It's a tiny forested coral outcrop, which is visited by tens of thousands of tourists every year. The general Port Douglas community was so worried about tourist pressures on the island, it initiated and sought funding for live-in caretakers. They look after the picture-perfect lighthouse, take weather readings for the Bureau of Meteorology and make sure the rules are respected. And to offset their presence, like increasing numbers of the reef's tourism operators, the caretakers have achieved 100% carbon neutral energy use. Our friend here lives on the island as a caretaker yeah. ranger part time. Yeah, hello, how are you going? Don't feel too sympathetic, it's not such a bad job. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see the job I had this morning in the sewer. Oh, <laughs> leader of sewer, you wouldn't have liked So it. what are the challenges operating and living on the island? What are the hardest parts to maintain? Well, the on, sustainability, on I think, and this is where the caretakers, we're only relief caretakers, the caretakers that actually look after that is so determined to get this island to neutral uh, sustainability. So... You know, with the advent of two solar arrays, this one, and on the other uh, research station roof, we produce enough electricity, even on a, on a bad day, we produce enough solar to run the island. A lot of the power on the islands run refrigerators in the house and the sewage treatment works, which of course is running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So the greatest, I think, achievement that this island's achieved in the last five years is the fact that the old diesel generators are now retired. Yes, I'll open up if you like because I've got to do an inspection. I've got to do a weather check now so I can't spend time with Thanks. So we get the wind and the weather and observations. So George is just doing another report and logging in. This goes through a microwave radio telephone to the internet live. So this is updated and this has been going on for many, many years, and that also gives readings from the top of the lighthouse, which has its own solar energy, to communicate of what's happening with the sky and observations. Good. And you can see the diligence of a caretaker. <laughs> the past couple of decades on the reef has seen an interesting shift in Australia's coastal community activities. The reef as a heritage area was born in the late 1960s after determined community action led by artist John Bust, poet Judith Wright and ecologist Len Webb. It's been a slower burn for the broader population to become proactive. But recent years have seen citizen-run turtle hospitals, beach cleanups, biodiversity counts, tourism industry research, voluntary indigenous moratoriums on turtle hunting and successful demands for an end to dredge spoil dumping. Adam Smith. There's a few scientists, but there's hundreds of thousands of people that go to the reef and they see some quite amazing things. So the growth of citizen science in the reef as well as terrestrially has been huge to assist with whale watching, shark counting, turtle counting, bird counting and this has been around for a long time but it really has blossomed and it has a number of advantages. Not only is the science useful for management but the person gets educated a lot more about particular species and their vulnerabilities and has much more interest in management and might be involved in doing something active about it. So 
here we are on uh, Welcome Bay at Fitzroy Island and we're 80 metres south of the rocks. My name's Nicole Harmon and I'm a conservation officer and my role is the Great Barrier Reef Region's Marine Animal Strandings Coordinator for the Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service. Nicole has run turtle rescue training sessions for 400 volunteers so far. So in the past where our marine park rangers would be out there and have to respond to incidents with having volunteers and, and these groups, they're often really locally based so they can respond straight away and we've trained them up in terms of the appropriate action and then the reporting protocols as well so we can get really important information back from them about you know, the type of turtle, where it is, when it died or if it's still alive and any kind of cause of illness or mortality. So that's the really important information we need to feed back into the database and from that we can try and ascertain any trends or issues in turtle health along the coastline and then hopefully implement management actions as a result of that. So now we've got this great network. Fortunately, in the last couple of years, um, the numbers of strandings has decreased uh, back to maybe a normal level pre-cyclone Yasi in 2011. But it's great to have all that support from the community now and it frees our rangers up to go and do kind of other projects to do with turtle conservation but in more remote areas. For Christine O'Sullivan from Jamaica, Samantha Kwan from Samoa, Roland Baldeo from Grenada and Michelle Calamandine from Guyana, working from the ground up has been the only way to bring about change. Legislation can't make a difference without new attitudes from the community. I grew up on a coast, but my early uh, years, my background was in farming. And then a little later on, I became a fisheries officer. And I was working with fishermen for many years, teaching them how to fish. But then about seven years ago, I came into the Marine Protected Area Program, the conservation. And then I realized, no, we have to do something about protecting our reef. So while for 20 odd years, I've been teaching fishermen how to fish, now I'm trying to protect the fish from the fishermen. Grenada is a small island, and it's 100 square miles, the population is 100,000. We have about, you know, 3,000 fishermen. So after all those years, you know, I've been working nationally with fishermen over these years, so I get to know a lot of the fishermen. So. In terms of uh, advocating on uh, conservation and so, I can speak the fisherman language. We have community-based marine protected areas and we have what we call village bylaws. And so it's basically villages creating whatever type of laws they want. And in these laws is a restriction and ban on these destructive fishing methods. If anybody is caught doing this, normally at the village level they'll be fined, but if the village wants to take it higher, they'll be taken to court. Yes. So they're different for each village? Yes. Are they effective, do you think? Once someone knows some, someone's doing something bad, everybody talks. They've seen how fish have recovered in some areas where they've been protected. And so what happens is kind of like the dominoes effect. The next village says, we want this. And so they approach the fisheries department or the marine department and say, please, we want something like this. And it's really helped with how to get communities to change their behavior around protecting their marine environment. But what hasn't made an impact yet are communities living inland who have um, cattle and pigs 
they don't know the impacts, what they're doing to the marine. So coastal people, yes, very big impact in terms of protection, but we now need to direct our efforts to the people living inland and that they also have a role to play in protecting the marine environment. One of the projects that I'm particularly proud of is I worked in with three communities in Jamaica on sea turtle conservation, so in areas where there was a history of poaching, to let us then try and get them to be more interested in monitoring so that in the long term they're actually conserving and protecting the turtles as opposed to going out and catching them. So we didn't just come into a community and say, you can't do this, you know, in some cases they already knew that. But we was talking, so we would have workshops and we would tell them about what the problems were with taking turtles, you know, why they were important. When we gave the workshops, you could always tell who the poachers were. They knew when the turtles were coming. They could tell you where the turtle nesting beaches would be. And in one of the breaks, I just went up and we were talking. And there was one man who, he was telling me, he told me about the first turtle he ever took. And at the end, I said, so are you going to take turtles anymore? And he said, no. And sometimes they just tell you that to get rid of you and things. So I said, all right, let's see. And the NGO that I worked with in Portland, like a few months later, called me and told me that that same man saw some people taking a turtle. He wasn't able to stop them from killing the turtle, but he got, they left the eggs, which is generally unheard of. And two months later, he and his family and all the community were able to watch the hatchlings come down. So for me, it was at least changing the mindset of one person, and then he's going to probably go and talk to the other people that he worked with. And his children have now seen hatchlings go down into the sea. And, you know, and then the change starts, you know, just from that one person. One of the tactics that we do use, because we're not a law enforcement, is peer pressure. It's amazing how much you can get. I mean, we've, we've learned from high school kids what peer pressure can do, and it's the same sort of motivation we, that we use with sea turtle conservation in Guyana. Look, there are so many great people that are playing a part and some of the ones that I really respect from the community group are probably the ones that were very strident about the impacts of dredge spoil disposal in the marine park and when government made the decision to dump in the marine park it was the community groups that just kept going and going and going and eventually government overturned that decision and has just recently put in legislation to stop it. I think everyone plays their part and that's the key. It can't be just one group. If you're one group, you can achieve a little bit, but if you're united and you have the scientists, the community, the managers, the politicians all together, then it's huge. For a long time, I'd, I'd kind of moved out of the NGO world for a little bit. I was getting tired of being yelled at by the government. But coming here, it was nice, particularly with Mission Beach, listening to the people who helped start the Great Barrier Reef and the Wet Tropics heritage area. And the fact that they had the same problems, but they were able to actually get something accomplished. So it's made me want to go back and start the fight again and, and see what I can do. But can all this, once you look at the overwhelming nature of climate change, make any kind of difference? Paul Marshall says, maybe. So there's, there's two ways that that can happen. One is that corals that are exposed to nutrients, so fertilisers, actually bleach at a lower temperature. Their ability to deal with hot water is decreased if they're under stress from nutrients. So that's a, a really recent discovery and something that's very interesting and important to um, inform what we choose to, how we choose to prioritise our management efforts as a nation. And the other thing is that 
when corals die, you rely on larvae, which float around in the water, settling on a reef, essentially like sort of small bug seeds, and then growing up into corals. And that process is very sensitive. And when you have too many nutrients in the water, seaweeds grow, like a fertilised lawn, and essentially the weeds take over, and those little corals can't settle and survive. And the other thing that happens is you end up with a lot of sediment coming out of rivers, and it also makes it very hard for young corals to establish themselves on a reef. So those recovery processes, which are increasingly important as reefs are getting disturbed more and more, damaged more and more, are really being compromised because of pollution. And so understanding how this biology and chemistry and physics all come together is crucial to understanding what's happening on reefs and what we can do about it. A pressing question is how scientists on the front line cope emotionally. As scientists, they must remain objective, but they also know almost too much, just how much needs to be done by a world still struggling to come to grips with what climate change means. The reef is not only a high-profile indicator of the unfolding of climate change, but also inspires profound emotions for those who live and work with it. As we soar and dive through the gardens of abundant coral, flirting with turtles and laughing at the antics of the electric blue parrotfish, we feel the weight of the water above us and the weight of the future ahead for this place. And I think many people entered marine conservation with a fairly um, naive view about what we were able to achieve and perhaps we were allowed to be naive back then because the problems weren't so evident and all we had to do was just stop a little bit of fishing and deal with a bit of pollution and everything would be fine. And I think climate change has been a big shake-up with that and some people haven't dealt with the idea that we're losing and that, that sense of loss is, is very challenging for people. And I think there's a real psychological stress that people undergo when they have to confront that something that they thought they could do in their lives they can no longer do and so with the stages of grief that is obviously come up around people suffering loss of loved ones I think in a way many coral reef scientists and managers are suffering the loss of a loved one and so you know some people quickly move through that sense of helplessness and despair and move on to well okay let's just get on with life and I think that's what I was able to do and Today was really exciting because it was a chance for even me to reconnect with just how beautiful reefs can be. Beautifully diverse corals. I mean, we've got these sort of big outcrops and valleys and channels and caves and they're just covered wall to wall with corals. And in some places they're overlapping each other. There's more than 100% coral cover. And there were fish everywhere. And it was just wonderful to see the life and to show these reef managers from everywhere around the world, this is what your reefs could be like too.